0: Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Everything is Black and White podcast. It's time for another episode of Gibbo's Corner. I'm Andrew Musgrove, joined as usual by John Gibson. And as you might have realised over on social media, we asked you guys to vote on the latest episode of Gibbo's Corner. And this one won. It is the Geordies who made their career away from Newcastle United. We've been going back and forth over title. But I think, John, that just about sums it up. It does. It does. Uh, the interesting thing,
1: putting this together, I once wrote a book called "Soccer's Golden Nursery," which is a. It was back in the '70s, but it was about players of the, from the northeast that were become superstars. Geordie's a different thing, because where does a Geordie stop being a Geordie? Uh, Geographically, I would take the whole of Northumberland in there, but once you cross that river, if you're in Gateshead, you're a Geordie, but if you're in Sunderland, you're a Mackham, and further south, you're a Smoggy. So there is that grey area, and when that's happened, I've left them guys alone and talk about your real pucker Geordies, of which they are scores and scores and scores.
0: And we're going to talk about, or we're going to start with two of the most well-known Geordies. You mentioned Northumberland there, so we'll throw in the Northumberland link, really. It is Bobby and Jack Charlton. Yeah, without without a shadow of a doubt. I mean, has there ever been a more
1: famous footballer, a more elegant footballer than Bobby Charlton? I mean, Knighted, uh, World Cup winner with his brother, European Cup winner with Manchester United. Munich air disaster survivor, Manchester United director, Bobby's done it all, and he's done it with a massive, massive style. One of the great, elegant players. I mean, even these days, when you see clips of him playing, which can be grainy, etc., etc., but he looks like a gazelle. He looks at the perfect type of player. Uh, certainly, a different type of player to Jack Charlton. One was elegant and beautiful, and the other was knobbly kneed and killed people. Um, and there were different people as well as being different players. Uh, they looked very alike. You could tell they were brothers. They looked like two peas in the pod. But they were very, very different in themselves. Um, I become, in the old days, I become very close and a good friend of Sissy, who was the mum uh, of the two boys, and uh, she emphasized, even when they were kids, the huge difference between the pair of them. I mean, she described Jackie as a mixer, bubbling over with life and fun, like his mother. Uh, always a Geordie at heart, loving a game of fives and threes, which is dominoes, in the local pub. Bobby, on the other hand, was shy to the point where people misguidedly called him big-headed. They thought he was big-headed. He was actually shy. And... Um, but as as Sissy said to me, as a kid, Jackie was a rascal. He went bird nesting and shooting at the lasses out of the bedroom window. Bobby never got into any mischief. He was nicknamed a uh, Little Lord Frontelboy because he was he, he that's the sort of kid he was. Uh Jack always said to me they used to get sick of of having to traipse round with war kid because he was told to look after him by sissy and Bobby would just uh, tag along. But uh, they were were very, very different. I mean, early on as a schoolboy, everybody could tell that Bobby was going to be a a quality, quality player. Nobody thought um, uh, Jack had any chance. I mean, Bobby was on the small side, but he looked a brilliant footballer. Uh, that body swerve, panther leg grace was there all the time. Whereas Jackie was big and gangling with long, thin legs. He looked like a giraffe, uh, and he had a
0: clumbersome gait. So they were very different. They were very different from very early on. It's amazing when you watch uh, the Finding Jack Charlton documentary, which is absolutely superb. It might still be on on the iPlayer. You get the sense of just how proud Jack was of his northeast roots. Um, you know, yes, he Very went all much over so. the world, but he was still, you know, Ashton's big Jack. Just wondering, in terms of Bobby Charlton's affinity to the northeast, what was that like? Well, that was one of the
1: things. I mean, a lot of people remember the Charlton brothers for actually being one of the big fallouts in football. Um, and it was sad uh, because they had been exceptionally close as kids and when they both first started on the career uh, Manchester United and Leeds they were very, very close when the Munich air disaster happened it decimated uh, Jack because Walked was in that and we'll get to that eventually but in the end Jack fell out with Bobby, really over his mother, Sissy, he felt that um, Bobby, for whatever reason, lived a different, totally different life uh, to the way Mum and Dad lived and the way Jack lived. Jack was just a Northumbrian, out and out and proud of it. He wanted the cloth cap in the wellies and he wanted to be standing knee-high in water in a river fishing. Um, whereas Bobby... Uh, lived in Le- leafy treasure, uh, he loved nice wine, he was a bit of a squire and um, Jack got it in his head that he didn't come up enough and bother enough with Sissy and and for great shame, but for a long time, there, there was this uh, real, uh, and there was a fixation among the press wanting to nail it as true and neither would really talk about it. But the, it it was sad, uh, but they were, as I say, those these very, very different guys.
0: In terms of Bobby Charlton, because I think many people my age or because of the Newcastle connection, I, I think I'd know more about Jack Charlton, you know, this hard man who would take no prisoners. Yeah. Bobby, I know I've seen the clips like you say and you watch him, you think, wow, what I've seen, what a player. I mean, would he be the best player from class as a Jody never to have played for Newcastle United, do you think? Oh, I think he's almost
1: the best player uh, that's a Jody full point, whether you played for Newcastle United or not. I'm a huge fan of Peter Beardsley. I think he's the best player that ever played for Newcastle United. But Bobby Charlton was something else. I mean, he was the hub of the 1966 World Cup winning side. He was the hub of the great Manchester United side. He was just so elegant Um, at a time where football could be tough in those old days. He was supremely elegant. He he never got booked. Uh, He had a clean record totally. He was a mourner, mind. You talk to referees, they'll tell you he never shut up moaning about bad decisions, but he never actually stepped over the line that would get him booked. Jack killed people. I mean, Jack would say himself, "War kid could play, I could
0: stop people playing. And that was the difference between them. Now, I know Jack's. Jack was asked many times about nearly joining Newcastle. I think he was a, it was a kid and the trial didn't quite happen, or it did, or they didn't offer him a contract, what, what have you. Was it, do you think there was a, a regret from either, and I know they were very successful in their football careers, that they never got to wear the Newcastle United shirts?
1: I'm not so certain I was with Bobby, because Bobby was a genius as a player, and he went to Manchester United, which was a genius club, and he, he set all records at Manchester United and all records with England, so I think he was all right. Jack developed this passion which he could thoroughly understand for Leeds United because he spent all his career that mattered there and was a, a a real legend for them. But he always said that early on he would have walked to St James's Park to play for the tune. And his love of the tune stayed with him all his life, which is why later on, he took the Newcastle United manager's job. It only lasted his season. Uh, but he took it because he was asked by Jackie Milburn to take the Newcastle job. He took it. He said he didn't want a contract, which he refused a contract. He said, when I'm not wanted, I'll walk away. You won't have to pay me up, etc., etc." And he did just that. He walked away without a penny from the job. But, I mean, his love of... The tune was stayed there all his life. I mean, he, he recalled it as a as a kid. Um, he, him and Bobby used to go to St James's Park to watch War Jackie, Uncle Jackie, as they called him. And it was quite it was quite a ritual when Jackie was about uh, ten or eleven. Uh, he told us the tale. Sissy would give him two and six months, which they, they catch the bus to the Haymarket. They nicked round the corner to the British Home Store's restaurant to have dinner, plate in the hand, go along the line, of course, getting all the stuff put on. Then they'd run up to the ground, went in the popular side, which was opposite the Milburn stand, went in the popular side, pushed away to the front, nearest to the halfway line as they could get. And literally, he said, we had stars in my, eye. in my eyes. Were watching Jackie Milburn, Bobby Mitchell, Joe Harvey. Um, everybody that was a superstar I- of those times. Uh, afterwards, they, they would nip across the road from St James's Park uh, because the uh, New St James's Hall was just on the other side where the metro station is now. And every Saturday night they had wrestling in there. So Bobby and Jack come out of St James's Park and watch Jackie Milburn over the road to watch the wrestling. It was over by about nine thirty. Off to the Haymarket, bus back home, was the last bus to Ashington. Neither mum and dad were at the bus stop in Ashton to pick them up and take them home. And that was a ritual for them for so long. And it was that sort of love for it was amazing the Milburn clan of that time. Because Sissy, all her four brothers played in the Football League for clubs like Leeds and Chesterfield. Sissy said that she um cursed a thousand times since she have been born a lass instead of a lad because she loved football and she used to coach kids in Ashington um, and that was a, a an extra special time for them and of course when I arranged for Jackie Milburn to do This Is Your Life in Newcastle with Eamon Andrews, the big red book I was involved in the arrangement of that completely because we just produced a book between us, uh, Jackie Milburn's scrapbook, which triggered them to ask him if they would do it. It was the first time they've ever been out of London to record This Is Your Life. And of course, two of the first people to come on and be full of uh, their love for Jackie were Bobby and Jack Charlton.
0: Let's talk about the Munich Air Disaster then because yeah. you know, no matter which club you support or follow, I think which generation we are. I think everyone has heard of the Munich air disaster and you've seen the, the news reports and you realise some of the talent we lost in that oh. horrific moment and how lucky the likes of Bobby were to survive.
1: Oh I mean it was a horrendous time back in 1958 if you remember uh, they were coming back having played in the European Cup. It wiped out the heartbeat of the Manchester United side. Every journalist bar one died on, on the trip as well, and one of the journals was Frank Swift, who was the legendary England goalkeeper, who was a journalist by that time. Um, and the heartache of the whole thing, I mean, um, Sissy heard the news in a neighbour's house. Can you imagine that? The Chronicle phoned the local news agent in Ashington and asked him if he would call on Sissy before she read the placards about the Munich air disaster, because in those days they used to put the placards outside the shops. And the Chronicle phoned the local and said, "Will you nip round, tell Sissy, you know, alert her so she doesn't see it, and, and go into hysterics. At that stage, no one knew what had happened to Bobby. They weren't certain. All they knew was that, to coin the phrase, some passengers were mortally injured. That was all that was known at the first stage. In fact, uh, Bobby Charlton was lying in the Munich hospital. He'd been flung clear in the crash, 100 yards from the plane, dazed, battered, bruised, and he was actually still sitting, strapped in his seat that he'd been in the plane. He'd been flushed through the side of the plane, 100 yards away, sitting still strapped in his seat and and he was one of the the lucky ones and um, what he did when he come round was you see those days were so different the 50s to today in terms of communication it was so limited when he came round he grabbed a journal who was just happened to be passing his um his bed and asked him if he would contact the foreign office and um, The journal contacted the Foreign Office who then phoned Ashington Police to send a message to Sissy from Bobby and all it said was, I'm all right, I'll see you soon. And can you imagine today? That was the way it was done in those days and that was Bobby getting a a message uh, to his mum. Now, if you look at it from the other point of view, Jack Charlton at that time was a big name in Leeds United team. He trained that morning and he was in the dressing room after training, naked, having just been in the shower, when the Leeds secretary burst into the dressing room and announced, uh, hey, the Manchester United plane's gone down, we don't know about survivors, turned on his heel, out and slammed the door behind him. Then suddenly one of the lads realised and turned to Jack and said, Hey, your brother's on that plane, isn't he? And that's how Jack found out that that Bobby had been in this air crash and people had been killed. And he didn't know whether Bobby had or not. He took a train immediately from Leeds to the Central Station and then took a taxi from the Central Station to the Haymarket to get a bus to go to Ashington. Can you imagine players having to do that today? to get a bus from Newcastle to Ashington to go home to see his mum. What he saw were the placards, the chronicle placards, outside the central station, Munich air disaster, etc., etc., and he said to me, Gibbo, I was terrified. I wanted to buy a paper to get some news, but I didn't want to buy a paper because of what it might tell us. He decided, inevitably, got a few coins out his pocket and he bought a chronicle and the relief scanning through it because they named everybody that had been on the plane and all it said was Robert Charlton colon survivor he didn't know in what condition he was a survivor but he was a survivor and uh, off he went to eventually get into um, into Washington and um, when Bobby got home Both Sissy and Jack said he he was so decimated, so traumatized by the loss of dear, dear friends. I mean, David Pegg had just spent the New Year in Ashington staying at Sissy's house and he was dead. And at the Christmas, Bobby had gone down to Dunny, Doncaster, to stay with David Pegg. He was dead. One of the great, great friends he had was Duncan Edwards, who was only 18 when he died. A colossus of a young man in every way. Would have been one of football's all-time greats. And they lost him. Matt Busby was fighting for his life for an eternity in the same hospital. And when, when Bobby come back, he, he said he didn't want to play again. And they couldn't get him. Out of the house or to go back to Manchester United to do anything, he naturally lost total interest. And it was only uh, a, a local lad, Routledge, Ronnie Routledge, who was a goalkeeper, that turned up at his house with a football under his arm and he said, Come on, get yourself outside. They had a kick about and he, he went back to Manchester United and he picked up the pieces, but the scars of Munich stayed with him for.
0: All time,
1: not a long time, for all time.
0: Yeah, absolutely terrible uh, event there. But like we say, Bobby came out of it and he went on to, to obviously win the oh. World Cup and alongside Jack, of course, and just went on to have this amazing, amazing career. And when you do watch the highlights, you do understand just what a great player, technical ability was. And also, he had a more gifted ability than his, his brother. But then when you consider... What happened after their playing careers? They both went into management. One was a success, one wasn't. Yeah, I mean, I used to always kid Jack
1: when we're out uh, and he would say, Hey, hey, give up, I'm a World Cup winner, you know. I say, I'll tell you what, pal, you weren't even the best player in your own house, mate. Bobby was. Uh, but in fairness to him, what he was, was by far the best manager of the pair. Uh, I mean, when you think what Jack achieved, club level at a club like Middlesbrough where Alan Foggin adores him and adored him he he resurrected Alan's career which had been huge at Newcastle with the European First Cup and made him the top man driving from midfield and scoring a pile of goals at Middlesbrough when they won promotion he adored Jack and of course the Republic of Ireland where he was a legend for all time way beyond his death etc i mean he was always um, careful with the pennies was our jack and uh, when he, whenever he went into uh into Ireland, even after he retired as a manager and he went into a bar and everybody was gogo to see him he would set up a tab he'd say i'll just keep a tab and i'll pay at the end of the night and he would drink all night on this tab and then say how much is it and he always, he never paid, he signed a cheque for that amount of money, he signed a cheque, give it to the guy behind the bar. And 99 times out of 100, the bloke was so thrilled that he drank in his pub, he framed the cheque behind the bar and <laughs> never got cashed. And Jack had never paid a penny for his full night of entertainment. And he did that all over Ireland. On the other hand, you had Bobby, who was the introvert and the quiet guy, etc., etc., against the extrovert Jack, went into management at Preston and never, never really, um, really clicked for him. Uh, the ironic thing is that when he, when he he resigned in 1975 from Preston, and the reason he resigned is because the, the club sold... John Bird to Newcastle. John Bird is sent a half. They sold and was their best player at the time. They sold him New- to Newcastle behind Bobby's back, and as a consequence of that, Bobby resigned. His number two was Nobby Styles, who had played with him in the in the World Cup final, and he quit a couple of weeks later. And Bobby never went back into the game. He went into uh, he returned to Manchester United, his first love. Continued watching them and then became a director at Manchester United.
0: Do you think the fact that Bobby was a bit of a quiet man, did that impact his skills to be a good manager? I know not every manager. I mean, you look at like the likes of Roy Hodgson; He's quite quiet and he keeps himself yeah. to himself. Yeah. But we have seen occasions when he gets very angry. And I'm just sure. wondering, sure. did you ever see that spark in, in, in Bobby? What yeah, I mean, I,
1: I, I worked a lot with Jack and Bobby, more with Jack because he uh, on talkings and on the circuit after dinners. But I worked with Bobby as well. Uh, Jack was a success at that because of the force of his personality. Bobby was a success at that because he was Bobby Charlton and he, he had wonderful tales to tell. But he wasn't a natural communicator. He knew football well, but he wasn't a man manager uh in the way that his brother was and i think that impacted uh on his career but he became and has remained a director at manchester united and i think that suited him perfectly because he was a top class ambassador he was the connection between the boardroom and the manager's office for uh, supporting managers from uh, Alex Ferguson to everybody that comes since, and that was the perfect role for him, so he found it. Management was not the perfect role for him. Um, but the funny thing is, you know, when we talk, Andrew, about this little town of Ashington, which produced these two incredible brothers, World Cup winners in the same team, also produced a horse War Jackie, the family, Jackie Milburn, sensational. The whole family who played... football all over the place but they also produced the likes of Jimmy Adamson who played for Burnley skippered Burnley when they won the first division title and when they won uh, when they went to the FA Cup final in 62 he was uh, that was the year he was voted footballer of the year he played 486 games for Burnley Uh, he managed Sunderland at one time um, did Jimmy Adamson and ironically when Alan Foggin was there and when Alan Foggin adored Jack Charlton, he disliked with a passion Jimmy Adamson, who uh, got rid of the younger players at Sunderland. Produced Sasser, Irwin, a great fullback with Sunderland, and it produced other people within sport who have been sensational. Steve Harmison, uh, England, one of England's greatest pace bowlers, with a Newcastle United fanatic, who was involved in local football in Ashington since. Uh, Mark Wood. They played for england the cricketer uh, michael oliver who in my book is the best english referee and one of the best referees in the world from ashington and of course sir john hall who transformed newcastle united with the entertainers another ashington lad so a little small mining town produced some giants of sport something in the water perhaps oh giants of sport Maybe it was because they had to get away from the pits, <laughs> bless them, because they didn't want to work down the pits. So they, they, they doubled their efforts to be to be great at sport. But um, I shouldn't know to be proud of their boys, and
0: I, I know they are. Well, certainly. On to the second name then in your list. and mm. Newcastle fans of an uh, older generation will remember this gentleman for scoring one heck of a goal for an opposition side, obviously, because it's a podcast about Geordie's who didn't play for Newcastle and uh, he brought Newcastle United hearts in the process. Yes he did, Dennis Stewart, um and it's a 1976
1: League Cup final which uh, we've never won the League Cup as you well know, Newcastle United and that's the closest we've got, we've only been in one final and he, he broke the hearts but uh, he's a, he was a lad from Heaton, uh, wonderful, wonderful player It's very difficult for me to say that when he was a Sunderland star and he beat Newcastle in a Cup Final at Wembley with Man City. But you've got to say that he was an outstanding player. Um, And y'all, I remember after we lost the 76 League Cup Final I went downstairs to the dressing rooms to commiserate with the Newcastle players and get some quotes. And just as I went into the corridor who come out with the with the cup, than Dennis Stewart. And I said, Dennis, you, so-and-so, yeah, with a big smile on my face. And he said, I tell you what, pal, that's what you get when you reject one of the best players in the country. Because when he was a kid, at 15, he'd gone to Newcastle on trial. They told him he was far too small and he wasn't going to make it. And, uh, he, had to
0: go, and he went away and signed for Sunderland. Now, just on that, and we have got Mr Jack Nixon... Coming up later in the show because he's, you know, we talk about his discoveries Mm. and we're going to talk about Peter Beardsley as well because I think he was told a similar thing about his size. Yep. Yep. And many people who cover football, and we've done it as well on many podcasts, we always talk about those who got away. You know, they were told they were too small, they were told they weren't strong enough, they were never going to make it. And we look back maybe and think, how on earth, how on earth did you say that to Dennis Tudor? How on earth did you say that to Peter Beardsley? But I would imagine a scout will probably... I mean, you've got friends with Monty, Paul Montgomery. They'll tell you, you know, it's not as easy as you might think. And players, of course, develop. And I guess, on the other hand, the players that look good at that age sometimes don't make it themselves. Yeah,
1: that that was one of the amazing things about Jack Hickson because he had... I think it's not so difficult to scout senior players, to go and scout 21-year-olds because... Yes, they're going to get better, but you can see what they've got. To scout kids is very difficult because Bobby Charlton was an exception, but most kids are not. I mean, um, and that was the wonderful talent of Jack Ixon because he never scouted senior players. Jack, he scouted schoolboys, and he got a succession of England superstars, and yet he was scouting them as kids. and A lot of kids were told they were too small or too frail, like Beardsley, like Dennis Stewart. And, you know, I remember watching England schoolboys lots of years back now, and they went through a period where there was an obsession that you had to be six foot. To play for England boys, which is the under-15 side, you had to be six foot and built like an outhouse. Um, because it gives you physical dominance at their age over, say, the Scottish team who had little janky ball players. But that is short term and short term thinking. Because what happens to those giants at 15 is that everybody else catches them up physically later in life. Then their lack of natural ability shows and they don't become stars. The little guy often becomes a
0: star. Do you think, again, in terms of Dennis here, when he's rejected by his his hometown club, does that hurt more and does that spur that player on you? Well, I'm going to.
1: Yeah, it it depends who you are. I guess in Dennis's case, it most certainly did. It both hurt and spurred him that um, you might think I'm too small, but I tell you what, I can play and I will prove I am a player. I mean, he joined Sunderland at 16 in 1968. And by 1973, he was winning the FA Cup at Wembley in the most fairy tale fashion that was possible. I mean, when you look how Sunderland won the Cup that year, it's almost as staggering as how Leicester won the Premier League yeah. title all those years later. Because in November of the season when they won the FA Cup, They were joint second bottom of the second division. Not the top division, the second division. And then they went on this cup one and they beat... They not only beat Leeds in the final, who were the greatest side in the country at the time, but they beat Manchester City and Arsenal to get to the FA Cup final. It was no wonder they put a statue up to Bob Stoker at Sunderland because... What was achieved that year was impossible, but what they had was the basis of quality. They had Billy Hughes and Dennis Stewart, who were top top um, forwards of vision and natural ability, and I had one of the greatest shot stoppers that's ever been known at Sunderland and possibly in the country and Jimmy Montgomery, who made that amazing double save at Wembley. Um, So, you know, and the funny thing is, when I look back at what Sunderland did that year when they won the Cup in 73, uh, Ian Porterfield, who scored the winning goal, uh, and I used to know because Porters used to do talk-ins with me when Newcastle and Sunderland did talk-ins together, and often it was Porterfield and Superman, did talk-ins with myself, and he asked me if I would write his book which were called The Impossible Dream because that's what it was, Sunderland winning the cup, and uh, it was peculiar doing that, by the way, as a fanatical Geordie doing yeah, a Mac. I was going to say,
0: story. I don't think that I, is that, a, unless you've bought the book, I don't think that's a known fact. So don't write in, you know, give <laughs> had to earn a living, you know, pays the bills.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely, mate. Uh, I mean, I, I thought it was amazing that he would choose a Geordie to do, but it was. It's called friendship, and that's what we had. It was sure the
0: professionalism there, John. Yeah. That You can, you can cross the divide. You're all right. Absolutely. But the
1: interesting thing, you know, was the build-up to the FA Cup final week that Sunderland with Stewart and Porterfield had, and Porter's told me about it. They're playing in the FA Cup final on the Saturday. On the Wednesday, Dennis Stewart, Billy Hughes, and Ian Porterfield all went to the Top of the Pops studio for a live recording of Top of the Pops and were mixing with the bands of the, of the time, which was the sweet Hot Chocolate and Susie Quattro. So on the Wednesday before the play on the Saturday, they had Top of the Pops. On the Thursday night, it's the FWA dinner, annual dinner where you get the Football of the Year award, Leeds banned their players from going all the Sunderland players went to the dinner in London on the Thursday. On the Friday, the same three musketeers, three of the best players Sunderland have got, Chewed Hughes and Porters, went to record a radio stay, uh, show with Emperor Roscoe, who was one of the big DJs of that period. So it almost treated as a summer holiday. And... Um, which was a, an incredible thing but i said the porters you know it, it sounds quite ridiculous that that's what he said look bob stogo took the pressure off us we were still in bed by 10 o'clock at night but he took the pressure off us all the pressure was on leeds as hot favorites the trouble is that because sunderland was so successful against all the odds in winning the Cup at Wembley. Joe Harvey, the next year, got to Wembley, 74, with Newcastle, to play Liverpool, as big a challenge as Leeds were to Sunderland, and Bob Stoke was his big, big mate. They played for Newcastle together in the 50s, um, and he was still his golfing partner. So he thought, what was good enough for Bob in winning the Cup for Sunderland? We'll do exactly the same. So he sent us down to Selzen Park, For the full week down there, and it was an unmitigated disaster, because the players were bored silly. Uh, The training pitch was on a slope. It was like playing. uh, It was like training on the deck of the Titanic as it was going down. It wasn't even straight outside. Outside the hotel, they had nothing to do (coughs) after training for an hour and a half every day. The only entertainment they got was Frank Clark having taken his guitar with him singing Peggy Sue in, <laughs> in, in the uh, lounge of the, the hotel and come the final where well, we're lucky to get nil I
0: just want to bring something over to you actually John, we'll keep recording here because I've got a little bit of a, uh, a present for you that we've, we've sorted out while my glamorous assistant, my father All right. hands it to John don't worry dad, take your time just not recording a podcast good
1: gracious that's absolutely magnificent yes i recognize that little logo that's on the uh, so t-shirt we've
0: just handed john um a brilliant. polo shirt with his very own logo on you would have seen the Gibbles corner logo branded about um it was designed by doug young from the chronicle <laughs> and we've just handed john a shirt for him to keep top man that's so, brilliant um look at that it is actually first time i've seen it in person that looks cracking it looks Quality, it? Uh, we may mass produce them um, if people are interested. And I'll post a picture um, alongside this podcast when it goes out, so you can have a look. And uh, I'm sure I got, you guys can get in touch if you want to order one. Um, and on that note, I want to show you this picture as well. And if you can just, accept, we're talking about the two finals Newcastle win there, and I'm sure this is around the same time. You
1: Yes, that was that was the seventy the team the whole Newcastle United team in strip standing with me in the middle that was the 1976 was League Cup final side um, and it was an advert for if you want to know what's going on with Newcastle United read Gibbo in the Chronicle can you imagine these days the full team stripping into the strip and standing with a hack in the middle and, and that being an advert and they produced it on billboards all over the town
0: and with those flares as well
1: oh and the velvet jacket don't forget the velvet (laughs) jacket my son i mean i I was the dog's hydraulics in those days believe it or not that was the height of fashion i'm
0: loving how everyone's got kind of the same hairstyle and then everyone who's got a mustache has got a very similar mustache you haven't got one in yet but the hairstyles are all very similar i'll also post this with along with the the podcast as well (laughs) so you guys can see and have a little chuckle. (laughs) <laughs> on to um, the third name on our list then. We've got Stan... Of course, Mort- that, sorry, that Go team on. there,
1: 76, was the team that played against Chewett. The team yeah. on that photograph was the team
0: that played against Chewett. And unfortunately, the hearts broken by that fantastic goal. Um, we got onto Stan Mortensen now, a Blackpool legend. And if my research serves me correct, is the only player to score Harrick in an FA Cup final?
1: That is correct. That is correct. Uh, the reason for putting him in was that he was... So different, and he was from a totally different age, uh, era, uh, to the modern day. Uh, he was born in South Shields. Uh, the interesting thing was that you'd say, well, how is he a Jody born in South Shields when his his second name is Mortensen, M-O-R-T-E-N-S-E-N? Simple reason is that his granddad was a Norwegian sailor, and so the name Mortensen had been passed down. He was born in South Shields, um, but originally the family on his dad's side were from Norway, but of course these names creep in. I mean, my big, big pal is Ian Lafonay, which is hardly a Geordie name, Fene, That's. but you can't get more of a Geordie mm-hmm. than Ian than is. The reason he's called Lafonay is because his dad's side of the family come from the Channel Islands originally, uh, hence the name. Um, but, I mean, Stan Mortensen was... Uh, he, again, we've just been talking about this, Andrew, he, again, was turned down by both Newcastle and Sunderland. He wanted a sign for Sunderland as a kid. He was turned down by Sunderland and Newcastle because he was... Dot, 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 too small. As, as they always did um, and he went to play for a team called South Shields ex-school boys, can you imagine a team it was a team that was put together that had been a school team, they didn't want to uh, just go down own way at the end of playing for the school so the, the, in 1935 they formed the South Shields ex-school boys side uh, run by a guy called John Young, who later told me the tale about what happened with Morty, and um, they beat everybody in the northeast. So they put out a challenge nationally: Would anybody take them on? Uh, and Blackpool, Blackpool said, "Yeah, come and play at Bloomfield Road against our kids, uh, the South Shields kids side." Um, and sure enough, they did. And as a consequence of that, Blackpool signed two kids from the South Shield side. The other one was Morty, of course, and the other kid was somebody that just didn't make it in the end. But that's how Mortensen got to Blackpool, where he become an absolute legend. I mean, the funny thing about him, you've got to remember that we're talking about the the Second World War time. And... (coughs) <coughs> he'd become a big star with Blackpool, who were a top, top side in those days, and a big star with England. But he almost didn't become a star at all because he almost lost his life. Because he, during the war, he'd volunteered for the RAF, and he cheated death twice. He was a, a wireless operator in a Wellington bomber that um, got hit and with flames licking from it, crashed uh, near Lossiemouth in Scotland. There was only two survivors in the whole of the plane, uh, both severely injured. Uh, One was the navigator who lost a leg and the other was Morty, whose body was mangled, he had a gaping head wound that needed 14 stitches, etc, etc. So his career was almost over before it started. And later on, he was practising parachute jumping. Well, when, when he nearly hung himself, when strangling himself with the cord of his parachute round his neck. So he come out of all that to play for Blackpool at the time when they were a top top side. They made three FA Cup finals um, in 1947-48. Morty scored in every round, including the final, but they lost to Manchester United 4-2. And then in '51, of course, they played Newcastle United in the final. Um, at this stage, there was an obsession in this country with Stanley Matthews, the greatest footballer that anybody had ever seen at that stage of his life, English footballer, and he'd won everything possible bar an FA Cup medal. And he was getting old, and the, the, the whole story was, will he get an FA Cup winner's medal before... He retires. He hadn't got one in 48 and 51. He played against Newcastle. And, um, of course, Blackpool, Mortensen and Matthews, were destroyed by Jackie Milburn, who scored both Newcastle goals. Two of the greatest goals scored in a cup final, one running from the halfway line, slotting it past the goalkeeper, and the other one taking a back heel and lashing it in the top corner of the net. Sensational goals. And it was so different in those days to now, football, because Jackie told me afterwards, and I watched it on YouTube, because you can still see them now and you can see it, after Jackie Milburn scored the goal where he ran from the halfway line to the box, slotted in the corner and turned away. When he was running back to the halfway line for the kickoff, Stan Mortensen shook him by the hand because he'd scored such a good goal <laughs> and... Stanley Matthews shook him by hand. Can you imagine the opposition now? They would probably shake you by the neck. You know, you couldn't imagine that, but it was quite gentlemanly. But there again, they didn't go berserk when they score and do a knee slide and 16 people on top of you. you know, They didn't do any of that. But um, but that and, and this was Morty and Matthews being denied for the second time in three years, an FA
0: Cup final medal. They finally got it in 53. And, w- and when you look at that game, I mean, there were 3-1 down Blackpool and then Morty ends up getting uh, one 68 minutes and then one in the 89th minute to draw the, the scores level, playing Bolton Wanderers. And then Perry gets one, two minutes at the injury time or whatever it was called. But I mean, that is like a cracking hat, when you think about it. And then he's got a statue outside Bloomfield Road. Uh, You know, an absolute legend of Blackpool. Oh,
1: uh, there's no question about that. Uh, The amazing thing was that he scores a hat-trick in the final for Blackpool to win 4-3, but it's forever gone down in the history of football as a Matthews final. Matthews, who didn't score, but because he at last got his medal.
0: Well, I was just reading there about uh, Morrison's uh, funeral, and and it's it was joked that it would, it would probably be called the Matthews funeral. That's right.
1: <laughs> yes, I bet he wished it was a Matthews funeral.
0: <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's true.
1: I mean, it was quite incredible um, that Morty should score the only hat trick in, a, in a, a FA Cup final, but the final's named after his teammate and. Um, I also remember the other dimension on it was while, and Matthews had had a wonderful game in fairness, setting them up, but Joe Harvey, when he played for Newcastle in, the, uh, in that 51 final against Blackpool, the great love in his team was Ernie Taylor. An inside forward, little Ernie was called. He was dinky, by the way. He was knee I to a grasshopper. Uh, but he was a wonderful footballer. And, Jack, and Joe Harvey used to say, I won the ball, I give it to Ernie Taylor. Then I stood back and admired what Ernie did with it. And his obsession with Ernie was so much... And Ernie had won the cup with Newcastle. His obsession with Ernie was so much that Joe Harvey was standing in the crowd at Wembley standing in the crowd with the ordinary punters to watch Ernie Taylor play in that 53 Cup final and um, he, he said and he is biased but Ernie was, he said Ernie Taylor was the best player on the field forget Morty, forget Matthews Ernie Taylor was the best player <laughs> on the field and he did play that well um, but uh, I mean all sorts of weird because we're talking of the war and he was in the rough and he's almost lost his life I mean Because of the war, Stan Mortensen has a unique record. He actually played international football for three countries. Can you believe that? Um, I mean, he played for England uh, between 46 and 54. He got 25 caps, and that was the poker thing. But because of the war, um, England played Wales at Wembley in. 1943, none of them were official internationals because the war was on. But he was on the England bench, a Wales player got injured, so they asked if they could borrow one of the England players, so they took Morty and he put the Wales shirt on and played for Wales um, against England. He then played for Scotland in, in a wartime international later than that, so he. A Geordie lad with a Norwegian name played for England, Scotland, and Wales at international level, and Mm. quite amazing. And he also went on, of course, while he was there, to um, to become Blackpool manager between 67 and 69. Um, And the significance of that, from our point of view, was that he was the man that signed Tony Green from Albion Rovers for Blackpool. Uh, And he signed it against the wishes of his own board. Um, Tony Green told us the story. Uh, Monty had been told specifically by the board, don't buy Green. You can't buy Green. We're not paying the money for him. He's not big enough and he's not good enough. That shows what a good judge the directors were. But Monty went out and signed them anyway, told Tony Green what the board had said, but said, I'm going to sign me anyway. Come back. He says, I've signed Tony Green, he says, what's more, I'm playing him on Saturday. And, and Tony Green become a legend down there in one of the great players, Fleet Fleetwood, Newcastle. He also managed Alan Suddick, the old Newcastle player, uh, while he was at uh, Blackpool. I don't think he was really cut out to be a, a manager, but uh, he's as big a legend, Morty, in Blackpool, is Jack, as Jackie Milburn
0: at Newcastle, who was the other is centre-forward of his era. That puts it in its perspective, doesn't it? And interestingly, the month of May seems to be the Morty month because he was born in May, he signed professionally, made his England debut, won the FA Cup, and then unfortunately died. So, May seemed to be his month. Now, on to... Apart the f- from the fact he died well, in that month. That, <laughs> that, <laughs> but, you know, we've all got to for some time. Uh, on to number four, and the fourth name yeah. listed, and it is a man who really isn't very popular at the moment with Newcastle United fans, it is Steve Bruce. Uh, We're not going to talk about his management, we're going to talk about him as a player. No, these are all about players and
1: it's what happened to Steve Bruce and Peter Beardsley who were together at Walsham Boys Club of course. And whatever anybody may think today of Steve Bruce as a manager, there is absolutely no question whatsoever that he was an outstanding oh, centre-half. Yeah. You don't captain Manchester United to all the things they won during his era uh, without being absolute quality because Alex Ferguson made certain his whole team was quality. I was always staggered that he never got an England cap. That was quite, quite amazing that he that he didn't. He could have got a Republic of Ireland cap because of his um, parents... Yeah. But Alex stopped it because Alex didn't want them away all the time with the, with the national side because he might get injured. <laughs> but, um, I mean, the, the amazing thing with with both Bruce and Beardsley who were at Wall's End Boys Club at the same time, and Wall's End Boys Club produced all the great, great players from this, uh, this area. And um, when they were both 16-year-olds, they were offered a trial at Gillingham, not the most salubrious of football uh, venues, but um, what had happened was Jerry Summers, who was manager, um, had seen them playing and offered them both trials, uh, and they went down together uh, for a week down to Gillingham. Uh, At the end of the week, Summers offered Steve Bruce an apprenticeship but told Peter that he didn't think he'd make it and he'd better go back up to Newcastle. Now, considering that Peter Beards, he went on to win 59 England caps and win uh, the Championship with Liverpool and become arguably the greatest player Newcastle United have ever had in terms of natural ability. It shows what Jerry Summers' um, uh, opinion of players. I mean, he could could get a job at Newcastle United today as a scout and buy all the wrong players and turn the good players away. Um, But when I asked Steve Bruce about that later, it it was interesting what he said because he said, uh, we were both small and undernourished was the, um, in other words, skinny. Can you imagine... Steve Bruce, small and skinny, but he insists that was (laughs) that was uh, the way it was. He was about to, to, when that Gillingham trial came about, Steve Bruce had decided he was going to turn his back on football and start as an apprentice plumber uh, up here in the northeast. But he got the chance. Before Beardsley got the chance, uh, Beardsley eventually got his chance through Bob Munkert Carlisle. But when he actually went to Gillingham, uh, he was a midfield player, uh, Steve Bush, And he says there was a guy there called Bill Buster Collins, who was in charge of the youth team. And he turned him from a midfield player to a centre half when he was 18 years old. He called. He called Collins one of the biggest influences ever in his life. He became part of the Collins family. Uh, and Bill had said to him, look, you're decent in the air, you like your tackle, but you're not quick enough, either your feet or your mind in midfield to dominate midfield. And Brucey said, I knew that. He said, I made me debut for Gillingham against Blackpool in 1979. By this stage of his life, Alan Ball was player-manager of Blackpool. He said, "And I played in midfield against Bolly, and I thought, come the end of his career, be slow, I'll wedge him a couple of times. He'll be out the game. I'll be okay." He said, "And I didn't get within ten yards of him the whole game. Bolly just ran the show, and that convinced him that uh, that Bill was right, and that he was best off at centre half. And considering he played." 414 games for Manchester United, sent off and scored an astonishing 51 goals. Um, and you know what amazed me about Brucey was his ability not only as a centre half to keep the ball out his own net, but to put it in the other net from set pieces, whether they were corners or, or whatever, whatever, with his head, with his feet. I mean, in 1990-91, Steve Bruce. A centre-half scored 19 goals in 50 appearances for the first team in all competitions. 19 goals in one season as a centre-half. Steve Bruce would love a centre-forward at Newcastle United now that that could get 19 goals. And he can wish for as long as he likes, because he isn't going (laughs) to get one, because they cost an arm and a leg. He scored 19 goals in one season. Now that... Tells you that Amazing. it's undeniable that he was a quality player.
0: And interestingly, another link there with Gillingham is that you had Gavin Peacock dad, was a big part of Gillingham. He managed Gillingham during uh, yes, he did. some of Steve Bruce's time there. And another another link, you know, when you castled Jordy, I, I know Keith wasn't, but uh, they had that family connection there because There's, Gavin a, there's
1: always 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 links with the area, isn't there? I mean, he went on from Gillingham to play for Norwich, and he played in the League Cup final against Sunderland and uh, did Steve beat them which is uh, thank you for that one my <laughs> old son do you know the the interesting thing about that final a little bit of nonsense it doesn't really matter but interesting League Cup final Norwich v Sunderland Norwich won both sides were relegated out the to top division that season
0: wow. the, the two sides that played in the League Cup final interesting that. isn't it it's interesting definitely I always wonder what Newcastle United fans would rather. Would they like, not like, would they take the side relegated if that means winning a cup the same season? Let us know. We have a, we do have an email address. It is the E-I-B-W podcast at reachplc.com. You can uh, send any thoughts, feedback, questions for John or any other writers to there, and uh, we'll get through them. We do love hearing your feedback. You mentioned Peter Beardsley there. We we're going to just talk briefly about him because obviously he kind of had to go on a similar journey of, getting rejected, coming back, proving his worth and and then go out and have this absolutely amazing career.
1: Yeah, um, it's unbelievable to think that nobody would take him. Um, Nobody would take him or Brucey and then in the end, Gillingham took Brucey before uh, Beardsley found a club. Um, And in my humble opinion, the wonderful thing about football is just all about opinion. I think the most talented player Newcastle United have ever had in their history is Peter Beatley because he's a maker and taker of goals. Naturally gifted, wonderful feet. He wouldn't possibly have had a league career if it wasn't for Bob Moncur, who was the old First Cup winning skipper, who took him to Carlisle. And from there he developed, he went to Vancouver, Whitecaps with... um, Johnny Giles played one match at Manchester United and come and signed first to play with Kevin Keegan and Waddle up front in the promotion side. Keegan loved him so much, when Keegan became manager he brought him back when he was assembling the entertainers at the end of his career. Uh, But A phenomenal player. A wonderful, wonderful
0: talent. 100%. And that leads us on to kind of well, it does lead us on to Michael Carrick next, and that'll lead us nicely on to the role the Walls and Boys Club have had—not only producing players for Newcastle United, but more so and producing just fantastic players that have gone on to have careers not necessarily at United, but you know throughout yeah, the country. Yeah,
1: of course. Well, uh, as we say, uh, we're talking to Bruce and Beardsley there, who were two Walls End Boys Club players. Michael Carrick who I, I was wanting to mention now another uh, boys club they have been phenomenal over the years the biggest star makers in the whole of the country as a single club in the whole of the country no one has produced more football Premier League and Football League What's players What's the secret than
0: then? What, what, what do they have that no other boys club have?
1: They, that is a terrific question because um I mean obviously they've now assembled a a, a great uh, background of of coaches etc, etc. They had Peter Kirkley run the club for years and he was alongside Jack Hickson, one of the great finders of talent that was possible. He was a single man, never got married, his love was football, He travelled everywhere, every night to watch kids, A, to try to get them to come to Wall's End, and then B, to try to get them league clubs from Wall's End, if they were good enough. And Peter's still around today. The ground at Wall's End is called after him, the Kirkley Stadium. Uh, He's still around today, a wonderful, wonderful man who has so much to do with... The modern-day End Boys Club, and um, you know when when you look at, at at Michael Carrick, who's one of the the newer kids off of, of the uh, um, conveyor belt. Um, I mean, a great an upright player, gets his head up, runs with his head up, sees everything, um, dictates because he's not flamboyant off the park because he's not a gazzer as a cheeky chappy. Doesn't grab the
0: headlines, does he? No, he doesn't. uh, I always felt he was underrated. I know he won all the medals and he he did cost quite a bit of money, but I felt he was an underrated. He was, mainly because
1: he was happy just to play football and then go home. Hmm. Um, He didn't shout about it. He didn't do a lot of interviews. But, I mean, Alex Ferguson called him the best, English player in the game which is some uh, some statement and when I mentioned that to Michael he said I he said I give." he said but uh, that's the same manager that used to say to me you don't play well until it starts raining and so he used to leave me out of the team until September or October when the grounds were getting mm-hmm. a bit heavier put me in I was never out there. I was never out the team again he said that's how we we uh, that's how he, he worked him. He signed him, of course, from Spurs in 2006. I mean, the interesting thing was his his huge links with Walsham Boys Club have remained. They were always there and have remained. His parents are Vincent and, and Lynn, and Vince Carrick, who worked at Walsham Boys Club coaching, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. Total Newcastle United fan, as Michael was as a kid. Michael was a huge Newcastle fan as a kid. His dad's a huge Newcastle fan. His dad is so much Vince of a Newcastle United fan that is a member of the Fairs Club, which is the the fans that were set up because of the nineteen sixty nine winning of the Fairs Cup. I'm the president of the Fans Club. And Vince is a member of the Fairs Club and we often take a coach before the lockdown et cetera, et cetera, and go all over the country to visit players Who, when it's a birthday and we've been up to Scotland to see Jim Scott and Tommy Gabe and uh, uh, Jackie Sinclair before he died, bless him, we've been over to Bolton to see Wynne Davies down in Nottingham to see Frank Clark and often Vince is on those trips with us um, and Michael's brother, Graham, went to West Ham as Michael did. That's where Michael started. But he had a bad injury. He got a bad injury before his career actually took off, come home, and has still remained in football, in coaching. But um, talking of the Fairs club, Bill Gibbs, who's chairman of the Fairs club, uh, used to be a scout. He scouted for Wimbledon, Coventry and West Ham. And he was involved in taking Michael down to West Ham uh, for a trial, and from that you got him as part of that great academy at West End, at West Ham, that produced all sorts of good players, Joe Cole and various players like that. And then he went on to Spurs, and then Manchester United, which became his sort of spiritual home. But I talked about Bobby Charlton being an elegant player in a different way because Bobby Charlton was explosive as well as elegant. Carrick wasn't explosive, but he was elegant. Uh, and he, he, he you sort of got the impression that he ironed his shorts as well as his shirt and that he, he looked as good as that the whole game.
0: I can't remember which podcast I heard it on, but he was doing an interview and I'm pretty sure he said, and I'm sure someone will correct me if I'm wrong, he was offered a deal by Newcastle as a youngster, but it was, but the West Ham also made a deal and that. And it, his dad put his allegiance aside to Newcastle and picked the club which he felt was best for his son's development and whatever. Sure. It, it was something like that. And I think that, that is an amazing from a Forest perspective because for many um, kids growing up, they're sort of playing you know their father's dream on and in reality, they're signing for Newcastle and mm. they're doing what their father wanted. And, mm. you know... Um, and to put that aside and pick what's best, I, th- I think that's, I th- that's an amazing little tale.
1: Uh, yeah, it is. But you've, what you've also got to remember, that in years gone by, Newcastle United had a reputation that they weren't good for kids, you know. That when kids joined Newcastle United, they were rarely given a first-team chance because Newcastle United liked to buy big-name players in they like to buy big names that would stir the crowd in it. and therefore if you were a kid you didn't you know you were held back if you like so I know a lot of people uh, who have said I know for example although it didn't come Sissy always said to me if if Bobby or Jack could have gone to Newcastle or to Manchester United or Leeds I would have preferred them to go to Manchester United Leeds there's pressure on them in Newcastle because they're local kids and because they're obsessed with the club, but also the opportunities are limited. And a lot of people felt like that about joining Newcastle United. Mm. On the surface, wonderful. Mm. But it better, if you're a kid, to do it down Shiva Shearer way. Go and become a, a, a superstar and come back to Newcastle for a world record fee. Yeah, make them pay for it. Aye, that's the way to do it. But, I mean, Walls End Boys Club were just talking there about the wonderful players that they've produced and without... Going into detail about all of them, they've produced five players who have won England caps. Five of their players won England caps: Alan Shearer, Peter Beardsley, obviously two of the huge ones. Michael Carrick, as in all. Alan Thompson, who got one England cap, started at Newcastle, went to Aston Villa, went up to Scotland, played for Celtic, and got one England cap while he was up playing in Scotland. And the other one, of course, is Fraser Foster, the goalkeeper, who was at Newcastle, never got a first-team chance, but then went on loan to Glasgow Celtic and then Southampton and played for England. So, little Walls End boys club that played out of a hut initially in Walls End in what was called the Bear Pit, which is a -a five-a-side little pitch. you know, produced five internationals, and then off the top of your head, you look at the other players that produced, they'd include Lee Clark, Robbie Elliott, Steve Watson, Neil MacDonald, Paul Stevenson, all at Newcastle, Steve Bruce, Ray Hankin, a wonderful centre forward with Leeds, Brian Laws, who played for Forrest, Eric Steele, the goalkeeper, Mick Tate, Tony Seeley, and of course, the man that Hickson always said his great feeling was that he wanted these two lads to play for England in tandem. And that was Alan Shearer and Michael Bridges. And he honestly believes that would have happened, but for Bridges getting a very, very severe injury when he was flying in a very good Leeds United Mm -hmm. side. Um, But a phenomenal
0: club. uh, And still to this day, a phenomenal club. 100%. Just a quick reminder to please like and subscribe to the podcast totally free to do and leave us a review as well on to number seven we've got Norman Hunter yep yep Norman bites your legs Hunter (laughs) Uh,
1: some player Um, and for a decade he was Jack Charlton's partner at Leeds United in the wonderful Leeds United team that won everything under Don Revy not loved they weren't loved like the Newcastle entertainers were loved by neutrals throughout the country because they played like the Barbos play rugby. They, 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 they played like a show business 11, um, but Leeds didn't do that. Leeds had wonderful players, but they, in the Velvet Club was an iron fist. They, they really, really could wedge. And, and Norman Hunter played alongside... Um, Jack Charlton for ten years there in the Don side. He was from Aiton Banks
0: in Gateshead. Uh, See, I didn't realise that until obviously, unfortunately, he yeah. passed away recently, didn't he? L- last. That's last right. He did. With, with coronavirus. Yeah, I didn't realise that until I did the until that happened, and then you realise. Oh, yeah, yeah! Ah, just along yeah. the
1: road. Aiton Banks in Gateshead, you know where they where the hospital is, just by the hospital there. Um, inevitably born there, he was Newcastle United daft. I mean, no, but we never got them. What a shame, isn't it? He was Newcastle United Daft. He stood in the Gallagher end to watch Newcastle play uh, as a kid all the time. And he, he, he told me years later that he would
0: have crawled on his hands and knees to play for Newcastle. By Jove, would we, would we have liked that? In terms of Leeds' success, how important was the bite of them two in the centre back oh. in the defence?
1: Oh, hugely. Re- uh, hugely but they had bite all over the field you know I mean uh, Hunter could play a little bit as well I'm not certain how much Jack could play <laughs> uh, he could kill but I'm not certain and he could score goals standing on the goal line at corners and just flicking headers in um, but the bite of those two but in midfield they had two artists in Billy Bremner and Johnny Giles but my jove could they put the clog in and up front they had one of the best finishers that's possible in Alan Clark. And he tackled from inside the opposition penalty area
0: and felled people like trees. I'm just wondering when the Newcastle directors were looking at Leeds having all this su- su- success and realising they had two mad Geordies in the, in the defence, did they ever think, goodness I me, mean, how have them two slipped through?
1: I think there was so much ego at Newcastle United in the boardroom at the time uh, that far from thinking, if we dropped a clanger there, they would they would think, "By Jove, Jack Charlton and and and, uh, and Norman Hunter. unlucky lads aren't they? They never played for Newcastle, you know. <laughs> well, maybe they'll get the chance in the future." Uh, I uh, think the thinking was more like that than it was the other with way. With
0: every cup thing, and it's just a flash in the pan. They'll not be good that good I, next I, season.
1: <laughs> I, funny enough, Norman used to say that. I mean, he played a phenomenal number. He actually played 726 games for Leeds. I mean, that is phenomenal. But he said he rarely played well at St James's Park. And one of the reasons for that, he said, was the pressure on him to, that he put on himself because he wanted to perform. He knew his family were all up in the stand. He was playing in front of his family. They weren't always at Leeds to see him play but they were always at St. James's Park. He was playing in front of his fans and he wanted to play well at Newcastle because it was the club of his heart as a kid. And the pressure he put on him, he said, you know, by and large, I never played well at St. James's Park, uh, which is absolutely staggering. I mean, the interesting thing, he joined Leeds at 15. Uh, He was going to be an electrical fitter. and His dad... Tragedy. His dad had died playing a charity football match up here in, on Tyneside, charity football match before he was born. While his mother was carrying him, his dad died playing in a awesome. charity football match. His mum encouraged him to go to Leeds. He said, when Leeds asked him for a trial, Oh, I'd, I'd rather sign for Newcastle United, mum, and I, I would rather live at home. I don't want to go and live away. She said, you've got an opportunity, you go, it's the game you love, and he went into digs, with a Mrs Leighton, in in Leeds, with another little lad, with a, a shock of red hair, called Billy Bremner, um, and, they discovered him, playing for Bertley, he was playing for Bertley, just having recovered from a broken ankle, when a Leeds scout saw him, uh, and, and took him down to Leeds, and, um, I mean, what, he achieved there was quite phenomenal. I always felt the great sadness was that he didn't quite get the England caps that he deserved. He got 28, uh, but the why and while he partnered Big Jack for a decade at Leeds, when Big Jack played for England, the partnership was Bobby Moore, and Bobby Moore was just yeah. a, a different class, and so Bobby Moore kept. Norman Hunter out of the side, and so he didn't get the caps he deserved and the bigger tragedy is that internationally he is remembered for when we played Poland in 1974 uh, when if we'd won we would have made the 74 finals which were in Germany England didn't qualify because they had to beat Poland Um, and in a very tense, tense game. It was the game where Cloughy called the Polish goalkeeper a joke and a clown. In the, and he went on to save everything that was thrown at him, this Polish goalkeeper, who Cloughy called a clown. Um, at note, n- with the game running out of time, uh, Norman Hunter trod on the ball, which meant he fell over. They picked it up and they scored we got back to score an equaliser but the game finished one one, we went out and Norman Hunter carried the the blame for that internationally for years, which he did not deserve to, to carry under any circumstances because he was a wonderful,
0: wonderful player and as you know he he died just last year with COVID i no, will like to remember him as the, the fantastic player he was with oh. Leeds United. On to number eight then, and we've got Don Hutchinson, who is always a man who splits opinion, both down yeah. at Sunland up here in Newcastle, he's on BBC5 Live, he used to do a few columns for The Chronicle as well. Great character, he knows his stuff. Yeah. Um, why is he on your list?
1: Because he's a Geordie who whether anybody likes him or doesn't like him made it big time, Uh, if that there's no question, and because he's different, he's a Geordie who starred for Scotland, he's got no right to do that, he's supposed to star for England if you're a Geordie. Uh, He was from, he is from, dated and his club as a kid was ready with boys club which is we keep thinking of Wallsend End Boys Club and there's absolutely oh, no so question they're man. the best. But of Boys Club produced Gaza, they produced Tommy Robson, who was in the Newcastle side that qualified for the European Fair Cup. David Hodgson who was a wonderful inside forward that starred for Liverpool. He also went on and played for, for Sunderland and Middlesbrough, but he was a star at Liverpool. Colin Sim, who played for Sheffield Wednesday in Sunderland. Paul Thompson, who was a little centre forward, or I must mention Tomo, because he was my centre forward at Gateshead uh, when I owned Gateshead. Uh, he played for Hartlepool and he played for Stevenage in a famous, after he played for me at Gateshead, in a famous FA Cup tie, if you remember, against Newcastle United when Stevenage took Newcastle to a replay. At St James' Park, Alan Shearer. All that uh, fallout about the pitch. Got and the what, goal, and yeah. all that. And Tomo was, Tom was in that side. But I mean, getting back to Hutchinson and Hutchie, uh, I mean, as I say, was that rarity. rarity uh, Geordie, who played for Scotland, he got 26 caps and scored six goals. The reason he played for Scotland, and you were mentioning and touching on it before about how many, so many players want to join the club. A club because of the dad who was old. He played for Scotland because of his dad. His dad had been a minor in Nairn in Scotland for 35 years, was a fanatical Scottish football fan of the national team. Uh, and Don told me, he said, Look, from day one, I wanted to play for Scotland because I want to make my dad proud of me. And, and he was a Scottish fanatic. And then um, I mean ironically I was at Wembley up in this stand in the press box in November of 1999 when England were playing in qualifiers for Euro 2000 and they played Scotland over two legs uh, with the winner to go to, to the Euros. Uh, I was at both legs, I went up to Hampden Park to watch England play Scotland in the first leg. England strolled it 2-0, Paul School scored both the goals, and when they would come back to Scotland, when they come back to Wembley, Kevin Keegan was the England manager. Uh, we lost 1-0, went through 2-1 in aggregate, but we lost at Wembley 1-0, and Don Hutchinson scored the goal. They beat us. The Geordie lads scoring go this goal for Scotland, they beat England. And uh, I got to know... So I didn't know whether to laugh or cry, like, you know, a Geordie lad scores a winning goal at Wembley, that's the good news, the bad news, it wasn't for England, it was for Scotland. Uh, I got to know Craig Brown, who was manager of Scotland at the time, I got to know him quite well later on, and he told me about that game, and and he reckons that he put one over on KK in that game. He said, Kevin thought, He'd already qualified. They were 2-0 up from their way legs, so they were already through. So he announced his team early, Kevin, and he replaced Martin Keown with Gareth Southgate, the manager who's just about to take England into the Euros now. Uh, and uh, Craig Brown said to me, he said, Tony Adams and Keown were hard so-and-sos. He said you couldn't out-muscle them. They were it was like trying to punch holes and steal. He said they were hard as can be. But Southgate wasn't so aggressive. He wasn't so aggressive. So he changed his team. Having known what England were playing, because Keegan announced it earlier, Craig Brown changed his team. He moved Hutchison up to centre-forward, and he told his goalkeeper, Neil Sullivan, when you do your kicks out your hand, Kick them on top of Southgate, he said. And I told Hutchie, who was good in the air, get it, Southgate, and we will get some joy out of that. Hit it on top of Southgate, Hutchie will challenge him, and we'll play from the scraps, and we did. And he said, Hutchison absolutely terrorised Southgate. Uh, He scored the only goal with a a header. He said, and um, for me, he said... uh, Hutchinson was absolutely brilliant. He scored the winner for Craig Brown Scotland the way to England and the way to Germany Uh, so that's how good he was and Don told me later on he said me dad was at Wembley that day he said and that's the happiest I've ever seen him in the whole of his life Uh, because Scotland had beat England at Wembley and his son had scored the goal and uh, when his dad died in 2003, uh, they played Flower of Scotland at his funeral. Um, and, uh, I mean, Hutchie, will forget, you know, we say he splits opinion, uh, but you forget how good he is. He played for a host of top, top class managers. Started at Hartlepool, uh, but went on. He signed for Liverpool. He was signed for Liverpool by Kenny Dalglish, but played of his, most of his time there under Graham Souness, who he got on terrifically with, two big, big names. Harry Redknapp signed him for West Ham the first time he played at West Ham. His debut, incidentally, was against Newcastle United, and he scored against Newcastle United, but Newcastle won 3-1. So having played for Dalglish, Souness and Redknapp, he signed for Sheffield United, and who signed him? Howard Kendall, who was born up here and was a great, great player, who then went and managed Everton, his old club, and signed Hutchie again for Everton. And then when he went back to West Ham a second time, the manager that signed him was Glenn Rode. So Amazing um, list he played He played with some terrific, terrific managers. And
0: ironically, we're filming in Howard Kendall's uh, home village of Wrighton. This is where the Lanehead pub is. Um, yeah, yeah. Some player and some manager, Howard. Oh, yeah. Unbelievable records. There's a great documentary action on Sky. I recommend anybody watch, any football fan can watch it um, about Kendall. I think it's called Howard's Way. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah, yeah. So we've already briefly mentioned Jack Hickson, obviously, the mm. man who discovered Alan Shearer. But we'll just quickly go over him again because he is a man who discovered so many talents. I mean, obviously, Shearer stands out. and uh, You know, we we'll, we have discussed before about doing a separate podcast on him because I think he deserves yeah. it for oh, you uh, why is he included on this list
1: uh, because of the Jory players he found everybody he discovered was a Geordie and he here we go again he was an avid Newcastle United fan but he never got a job as a scout at Newcastle United right until the death when Shearer was at Newcastle and he got him on which quite frankly was far too late in his life when he became a Newcastle United uh, uh, scout, but I mean, he was a—it's—it's it's a phenomenal talent to be able to see it in kids, to be able to watch kids at school and know they're going to have a growth spurt and they're going to get bigger. And is the talent going to stay with them? Is it going to develop? And pick out so many that make it big time. Um, he worked at the Central Station at it, it Newcastle just as a clerk in the central station at Newcastle he got into scouting because he was in the Royal Navy and the ship that he was on Billy Elliot who played for Sunderland, played for Burnley played for England was on the ship and he got very very close to, to, to Billy Billy, he was actually Billy's best man when Billy got married um, and Billy said, look, you love football, et cetera, et cetera. Why don't you come and scout for Burnley, which is where Billy was, for me, in 1951 this was. And Jack Ixon said, well, yeah, it's a, it's a good idea, but it means I won't be able to go to Newcastle and watch Newcastle play. And he actually thought about not doing it because he'd have to give up watching Newcastle United, but he did it. And then, you know, he found incredible number of players. Uh, the, Some of the best ones were Alan Shearer, of course. Michael Bridges, which I I mentioned. Ralph Coates, who played for England. Dave Thomas, who played for England. Brian O'Neill, who should have played for England. Stan and A a huge number. And one of the... He'd become a second dad to Shearer. Uh, There's absolutely no question about that. He took him down to... um, southampton when he was 17 uh, he, he was the man that advised him the whole of his life on the way he should handle the press the way he should conduct himself etc etc and when jack died uh, and his funeral was held at color courts and um, i was asked by his family if i would talk in the pulpit on his funeral the only other time i've ever done that was with jackie milburn when jackie milburn died and i, I spoke at the funeral in ashington and um, but I've never been so choked up in my life and never been so privileged because three men stood in the pulpit and spoke about Jack at Jack's funeral. And the three men were Alan Shearer, Laurie McMenemy, who had been the manager at Southampton when Jack Hickson was there, Geordie Ladd from Gateshead, and I was was the third person to speak. And both Shearer and myself, and Shearer puts himself up as a hard case and a tough guy, and he is exactly that, but almost broke down and I had no chance because, uh, uh, and that's how much Jack Hickson meant to everybody but um, just before we go on to the last one you know about I I want to throw one other in very quickly and this is a bit of a test for you if I asked you where does the best footballer in the world come from you would probably say it might be Argentina because it's Lionel Messi or you might say it would, might be Madeira because of Cristiano Ronaldo. But in fact, it's not. Where the best footballer in the world comes from is a tiny, tidal island off the north Northumberland coast called Lindisfarne, which we know as Holy Island, to me and you. There's only 180 residents on Holy Island, but they have produced the best footballer in the world. Now, that in itself is quite incredible, isn't it? For a small island like that. The best footballer they produced was Lucy Bronze, who got ah. got World Footballer of the Year in 2019. One World Footballer of the Year in 2019. The first English person ever to do it. She's won three Champions League medals with Olympic Lionese, which is Leon is the men's team. She's won Super League titles with Liverpool and Manchester City, and she's now playing for Manchester City in England. Quite a phenomenal uh, girl and a phenomenal background because her, her real name is Lucia Roberta Tough Bronze. How about that for a mouthful? It's quite a name. Uh, yeah, she, well, she was born to a Portuguese father and an English mother. Hence, and a mam's maiden name was Tuff, which is why it's in her name.
0: That's such a... Such I, <laughs> as,
1: oh, it's incredible. Uh, so a um, uh, mom was Miss Tuff, and her sister, which is Lucy's aunt, was a police officer called Sergeant Tuff. Can you imagine that? That's a <laughs> wonderful name for a police officer. Couldn't write that, could you? Sergeant Tuff. And, and, and that's Lucy Bronze, who was very much a product of the northeast, uh, She lived on Holy Island until she was seven, and then she relocated to Annick. She played for a boys' team until she was, as a kid, until she was banned because she was a girl. She was banned from playing for So she turned out for Blyth Town Women's Football Club, and she was capped by England at under-17 level while at Blythe. Uh, the ironic thing was neither of her parents were interested in football. Neither her dad or her mum cared less about football. and She only got into it because her brother liked kicking a ball about and he had nobody to kick a ball about with, so he kicked it about with Lucy, uh, who then, when he played for England, might, Phil Neville said was the right best right-back in the world when he was manager of England woman. And he said, and she's probably the, the best midfield player in the world as well because she played both positions. And um, this area has produced a phenomenal number of great women footballers. Uh, but most of them are from south mm. of the river. There's Steph Houghton, who's from Durham, 121 England caps. There's Beth Mead from Whitby. There's Jill Scott from Sunderland, 151 England caps. There's Jordan Nobbs from Stockton. Her dad, Keith Nobbs, played for me at Gateshead. Was in my Gateshead team at the International Stadium and now his, his daughter's as good as that. But the one that's a proper Geordie is the one that's the best of the lot.
0: You, you did say you yeah, had a surprise for me. I wasn't sure who it was going to be. I didn't think it would be Lucy, but yeah, well worth the mention. And she, you know, she is. Newcastle have got a, a woman's side and they, they won a piece of silverware uh, earlier this month, I think it was, or late last month, which was great to see. And hopefully they they can kick on and continue that success as well. On to the final name. Yep, yeah, we, we have a we have a Kennedy.
1: We do, we do. Not Alan Kennedy because we've covered Alan so well through Newcastle in any way. He's a Macam, Uh so he wouldn't qualify as a as a, a Geordie superstar. But Ray Kennedy, who was a very dear friend of mine, and quite an extraordinary player. Uh, born at New Hartley which is just next to Seton Deleville uh, and is back living there now um, uh, I knew him from being a kid uh, <coughs> I used to ghost to column with, with him when he was playing at Liverpool and then at Swansea in the Football Pink uh, the Chronicle Football Pink the Ray Candy column um, I got to know him initially through John Molly, who ran uh, New Hartley Juniors. Ironically, John's son, who's John Morley as well, is running New Ordley Juniors now and is still in touch with Ray all the time. Uh, there's always great stories to tell about the wonderful players, isn't there? Like nobody wanted Beardsley and, and nobody wanted Brucie. W- Ray Kennedy went down from New Hartley Juniors, he was a centre forward, to Port Vale for a trial when they were managed by Sir Stanley Matthews, one of the greatest players this country's <laughs> ever known. And Matthews sent them home and said he wasn't good enough. Wow. And he then won everything. He then won the double with Arsenal, the league and the cup, and everything with Liverpool, including three European cups. He's the most decorated player of his era that there has ever, ever been. And um, he was a centre forward when he won everything at Arsenal. And when he Shanks signed him for Liverpool, but Bob Paisley, who's from up here, as you know, uh, had the courage to convert him, considering all the success he'd had as a centre forward, from a centre forward to a left sided midfield player. And I think pace or lack of pace had something to do with that, but he had the ability to dictate games.
0: And when you look at the numbers, I mean, very few players become do so well at teams like Arsenal like Liverpool usually you do well at one big club sure. and then you do a right in a, a, a midland club but I mean um, you know a midland as in in the middle not a midland club mm. <laughs> um, but to do it at both Arsenal and Liverpool is, is quite something oh, great numbers, numbers statistics and, and to be and
1: so different yeah, uh, to, to win everything at Arsenal as a centre and forward and to adapt to and that. a teenager I think he was about 19 when he won it then you go to Liverpool and win even more when, when you're playing um, as a left-sided midfielder, I mean, the, I knew him, as I say, very well throughout his career. He ended up uh, running the Melton Constable pub, which is on the coast near Seton Sluice, and um, his big mate was Jimmy Case. Uh, when they were at Liverpool together, there were two scallywags. that knew how to enjoy life, and they certainly did enjoy life. And my God, I don't begrudge him that because of what happened to him since. Because, uh, as as you know, he was uh, diagnosed with Parkinson's disease in. It was November of '84, and so he's had two lives so far, bless him, of total contradiction. First. Both were about 30 years each. The the first part of his life he was an absolute st- footballing superstar, adored by thousands and winning everything possible. And the second 30 years has been a, a continual fight against holding back as much as possible Parkinson's disease and that has been exceptionally difficult for him. And I've been to his house and the frustration for the lad because he can remember everything he's totally with it up here but he can't communicate the thing etc etc and one of the things that i've got to say at this stage in defense of the man is that we often talk about graham Sooness not having a great reputation as manager of newcastle again what a stunning player like no. I said Bruce what a stunning player and he played with Ray Kennedy in the great Liverpool side of course when Graham Souness was manager of Newcastle without any fuss or without saying anything whatsoever he went to see Ray went to the house he eventually paid for uh, nurses in care to to be available to Ray as it, it got worse, um, and for conversions to the house to uh, allow him with his balance and everything to be able to stay upright, he took him to sin- the training ground and into the into the dugout at St James's Park before he got too bad. Graham Souness was an absolute rock for Ray Kennedy and deserves massive credit
0: what for doing app, that. Yeah. What a lovely gesture there from. Soonest Absolutely. final question then, John before we wrap up we'll take Bobby Charlton out of the, this question because you've already said the best kind of Geordie ever really to play yes. football so the rest of the names there who would you have liked to have seen play for Newcastle in their prime so obviously we have Jack Charlton Dennis Stewart <laughs> Stan Mortensen Steve Bruce Michael <laughs> Carrick Norman Hunter Don Hutchinson um, or Ray Kennedy
1: I'll take any of them and any of them <laughs> in the pump would walk into the Newcastle team today but would have walked into better Newcastle sides than, than today's side. Uh, there's absolutely no question about that. Um I would never pick a defender because I like I like to be entertained. I half appreciate defenders. Frank Clark, Bob Moncker, before you're in touch with me. Um, but... I wouldn't take Jack, I wouldn't take Normante. Uh, I would love Ray Kennedy because he played centre-forward and left-side midfield, absolutely wonderful and it may hurt me to say so because he, he excelled at Sunderland but Dennis Chewitt had the flamboyance as a forward player to have played in the Newcastle entertainers' side. Um, having said all that, mind, I did mention one player in this, Peter Beardsley, who did play for Newcastle, and boy, was a grateful he did, because he is up there, not far behind Bobby Charlton. You can't not put Bobby Charlton in the number one seat, but little uh, Peter Beardsley, he reminded me an awful lot of the sheer audacity of good players. You had it later with Gazza when they can buy time they never seem hurried they always seem to have the extra few seconds that other players don't have they're special these guys that we've talked about today loved them to have been at newcastle unfortunately they weren't but if they couldn't be at newcastle I'm
0: proud of them to be geordie's Mm, what a career all these chaps have had and john thank you of popping on well it's your podcast so thank you once again for yep. another episode of give Us corner please remember to like and subscribe to the podcast